Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to the Sunday Book Review. The Sunday Book Review is the series where I discuss books which impact the compliance practitioner, the legal professional, and the business professional. I hope you will enjoy this episode. May 24, 2020. I take things in a different direction today as I have a guest podcast hosted by my good friend Sean Friedland, Director of Product Marketing at SAI Global. Earlier this month, Sean spoke with Denise Lee Yon, author of Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies, for the second edition of the SAI Global Compliance Book Club. Thought it might be fun to cross post this interview on the Sunday Book Review. If you're interested in hearing from an author on a book related to the compliance profession, the episode comes in at just over an hour. So uh, sit back, take some time, and enjoy this interview by Sean Friedland of Denise Lee Yon. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, my name is Sean Friedland, I'll be your moderator. And thank you for joining us for SAI Global's second edition of our Compliance Book Club. Today's speaker and author is Denise Lee Yan, who is a go-to expert on brand leadership for national media outlets like CNBC, NPR, and The Wall Street Journal. She's also an in-demand keynote speaker and consultant and the influential writer and author of best-selling books, including What Great Brands Do, The Seven Brand-Building Principles That Separate the Best from the Rest, Extraordinary Experiences, What Great Retail and Restaurant Brands Do, and her newest book, which is the foundation of our conversation today, Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies. Before we get started, a few quick notes. I wanted to let everyone know that today's session is going to be recorded, and a recording will be shared via email later this week or early next week, and that if you'd like to ask a question to Denise, there is a questions panel in GoToWebinar that you can use to ask that, and we'll get to them either throughout the course of the webinar or at the end of the webinar. And this webinar has also been approved by the SCCE for 1.2 live and non-live CCBCEUs. So any certified ethics and compliance professionals listening in today or on a recording will receive the certificates and redemption instructions via email. So that being said, thank you all for joining us today. And thank you, Denise, for joining us and making time in your busy schedule to join the Compliance Book Club uh, amid these unusual circumstances to discuss your book, Fusion, how integrating brand and culture powers the world's greatest companies, uh, among the other things that we'll discuss today. So for anyone listening who may not have read the book yet and was just really interested by the premise or who, who isn't familiar with you and your work, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself beyond my introduction? Sure. And thanks, Sean, for having me um, in this session. I've been really looking forward to it. I think the one thing that uh, I would tell everyone is that I love brands. I'm just fascinated by them as a, a professional. I also love them as a consumer. Um, you know, I uh, recently moved and I found a paper that I had written when I was a high schooler about Nike. This is when Nike was just coming out. And um, from, I think, that those moments to my last corporate role, which was heading up brand and strategy at Sony Electronics, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, my career has just been about understanding brands, how customers make decisions about what brands they're going to buy and associate their identities with, and um, also just about how companies actually build their brands. So as I said, my last corporate role was with that Sony. I left there. I resigned my post about six 
15 years ago and have been out on my own as an independent speaker, consultant, and writer. And throughout my, the entire career, um, what I found is that brands are not what you say, you know, um, they're not your logo, your name, your image, your advertising, really your brands are what you do. And um, through the process of working on brands, I discovered the, uh, you know, the way that you build a brand is really how you run your business. And so that's what led me to my first book, What Great Brands Do. And um, from there, I learned more about how um, you need to cultivate an internal brand-led culture within your organization. And that is what led me to my most recent book. So that's just a little bit of history. Thank you, Denise. Uh, as a marketer, I'm also... Uh, deeply fascinated by brands and have been for a long time. Uh, so I'm really glad that you could participate in Compliance Book Club today because I think there's a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about that will be interesting to our audience too. Um, now, when it comes to fusion, you know, why did you specifically decide to write this book? You know, you would know from experience, I would imagine that writing a book is a pretty big burden and project. So what really drove you or inspired you to write this one? Well, there was a combination of a couple of factors. One was my own experience, and then the other was uh, what I was seeing in culture and in business. So in regards to my own experience, um, several years ago, I had I had worked with a client. They are um, a national grocery store chain. And the first engagement I did with them was to help them uh, work on clarifying their brand positioning, uh, defining their customer experience, and really just um, re kind of re-energizing, re-engaging re their brand identity. And then the next year they came in and asked me to work on their internal culture and employee experience. And as I started working with them, what became apparent to me is that they considered those two things their brand and their external customer experience as completely separate from their culture and their internal employee experience. And as I was kind of trying to get them to, you know, see that these two things needed to be integrated and aligned, I realized that if, you know, if, if a formidable, you know, competitor in their, in the space is, as, you know, huge as grocery could not understand this concept um, there are probably lots of other businesses that are also um, missing out on the power of brand and culture integration and alignment. So that was kind of my own experience. And then what I noticed in, in, in culture and in business in general is um, the importance of organizational culture has been increasing. You know, whether it's the um, increased war for talent in many sectors, which, you know, the current pandemic has kind of changed the whole employment landscape. But generally speaking, I think that there is still um, a lot of competition for skilled workers in particular areas. Um, there was also, you know, the, the um, issues of sexual harassment in the Me Too movement a couple years ago. Um, co corporations struggling to to live out their values of diversity and inclusion. And they just kind of increased scrutiny that customers and other external stakeholders had into corporate culture. What I found is that business leaders really needed to cultivate a healthy, vital, sustainable culture in the organizations, but there was very little, re very few resources to help them do that. I mean, um, 
you, there was a lack of real understanding of how do you build a culture. And so I, I um, decided that I would write this book, Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies to address that gap. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think anyone listening in right now would feel uh, some sort of connection with what you just said, because all of those themes and topics are really resonant um, with the ethics and compliance community. And I, I think there was something especially that you said Whereas something seemed kind of obvious or innate to you, yet other, you know, seemingly <laughs> successful and prominent companies or people couldn't really comprehend some of these concepts. And, you know, I think a lot of professionals might struggle with that, where it seems like it's such a, a no brainer to them to pursue a certain path or to invest either time or money in a certain thing. Um, but sometimes it takes convincing for other people to really embrace that new idea and really invest in the change uh, that comes with it. And your book really struck me as a great fit for the ethics and compliance community for a lot of those reasons. Um, you know, it was actually recommended uh, to me by a mutual friend of ours, Richard Bistrong, who I know has you spoken with in the past and who uh, told me it was a great read and that I'd really like it. Mm -hmm. You know, he was right. <laughs> and I think the reason it really, you know, hits the mark uh, for, for what I do and for what our listeners do is that it focuses on a few topics that are woven into the DNA of the work done by an ethics and compliance professional. And it's really uh, four things. It's culture, values, communication, and brand building. So I'd like to spend our time together today really speaking about those four topics, how they work together, and how an ethics and compliance professional or anyone responsible for training employees and trying to drive their behavior towards doing the right thing may be able to run with some of those ideas. So I think we should probably start with the basics and build our way up. Uh, and okay. to do that, I think maybe the best place to start is, you know, from your perspective, what are the benefits of integrating and aligning brand and culture? Yeah, well, um, let's start with some some definitions just to make sure that we are all on the same page. So Absolutely. when I say brand, um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, your brand is uh, is really what you do. In fact, I, the definition that I use for your brand is it's what you do and how you do it. And so if you think about and you uh, use your brand in this way, it has so much more power than just kind of thinking about it as an external like veneer or um, uh, an image or a personality that you were trying to portray. But it really is about kind of how you are perceived and understood and experienced by people outside your organization. And then your culture, your internal organizational culture is really about, you know, just how you do things around here. You know, it's, it's the, um, it's the attitudes and the behaviors that, uh, are exhibited by the people in your organization and then the, the beliefs that inform those attitudes and behaviors. And, um, the power, you know, both brand and culture are influential drivers of business. But really, when you fuse the two together, when you integrate and align your brand and your culture so that they are mutually reinforcing and interdependent, you release so much more power for your organization. Number one, it aligns your workforce. It increases the entire efficiency of your entire organization and the quality of its outcomes because you and, and other people aren't wasting your time trying to figure out what is the right thing to do or kind of working at cross purposes. 
Brand culture fusion also improves your organization's competitive advantage because really what you're doing is you're producing value that's really intangible. You know, um, competitors can maybe copy what you do, the, the product or service that you're offering, but it's more difficult. In fact, it should be impossible really for them to, to, to imitate how you do it. And this unique combination of your brand and your culture enables you to produce that intangible value. Also, fusing together brand and culture ensures the authenticity of your brand. When you align your, you know, external culture, your internal, external brand, internal culture, you truly are on the inside what you say you are on the outside. And today's customers demand authenticity from the brands that they do business with. Um, as, and again, especially now in this pandemic, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I think this, the, the level of expectation, uh, the level of scrutiny and expectation has only um, increased now. And then finally, by fusing together your brand and culture, you can move your organization toward its vision more quickly, more easily, successfully, because you're able to attract and retain people who are motivated by your overarching purpose. Everyone who works in your organization is committed to the contribution you want to make to the world, and they work together to do that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really fascinating. I think in today's modern era of social media, um, it's really kind of forced brands companies to consider that that fusion and really those two components of it much more uh, deliberately because I think in the past you had the situation where you know a company could say this or you know convey a certain culture or a certain brand internally and kind of maybe broadcast it through their marketing and really try to paint this picture in the public and there was no way for the mm -hmm. public to really push back or hold them to it. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, mm -hmm. you see all the time on Twitter and Facebook, consumers, you know, loyal customers or angry customers really uh, interacting directly with brands in a way that never existed before uh, and really holding them accountable, which is, you know, super fascinating for me. And I'm sure it is for you, too. Right. I always say that, you know, today's customers have the ability and the proclivity to look behind the curtain of your business and really see how you're operating. And now with, um, I think, people's work schedules being so upended because of the, you know, um, stay at home and lockdown orders, they also now have the time <laughs> to really yeah, look into absolutely. what you're doing. So, I mean, everything you, you just, you, 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 like, you can't hide, is, I think is the, the conclusion. Absolutely. So, you know, given that, are there any examples that you've seen of organizations, uh, you know, fusing their brand and culture really well, whether that's, you know, in, in general or in today's circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there are the companies that we've admired for years fall into this category, you know, like Southwest Airlines. You know, you think about the kind of culture that they cultivate in their company, which is not only um, very fun and lively. And, you know, you've seen the pictures of Herb Kelleher, which, who was one of the founders, just kind of doing really outlandish things with his employees, just having a really great time. But then you as a customer experience, um, when the flight attendant tells jokes over the PA system or just kind of, you know, the, their uniforms and kind of the spirit that employees bring to the job. But they're also 
um, highly efficient, highly competitive, very focused. Um, they are a, a well-run operation, and that comes from a culture that is very um, focused on being efficient. And um, as a customer, again, you experience that as a brand. I mean, you you, you know that um, Southwest is probably like I would consider maybe kind of no frills, but that in a good way, in the sense that you know it's it's nothing that you. Um, everything that you want, nothing that you don't, you know. Um, so that's a really great example. Um, another example, again, this is a, a company that we talk about all the time is Starbucks. You know, um, Starbucks was started to as uh, from by Howard Schultz to be this kind of third place for people to gather. And so it's never Starbucks has never really been about the coffee. It's been about the community and and like the. Um, conversations and kind of the, the, the nurturing of a spirit that comes from being with other people. And so from an internal standpoint, the culture within the company, um, is, is intended to be very nurturing, very, um, uh, supportive, uh, the benefits that the organization offers to their, their employees, um, are extremely generous in terms of their stock options, health benefits, educational support, et cetera. And, and then again, as a customer, when you are interacting with Starbucks, I mean, yes, sometimes there's just kind of this trans transactional, yes, I'm going in for my cup of coffee, but I think you do get the sense that this brand and this experience is so much more than just that cup of coffee and that they really are trying to create a sense of community and a sense of caring. And then even, you know, um, kind of on a broader societal scale, the efforts that they've done to employ veterans, to open stores in under-resourced neighborhoods, to, um, you know, be a part of the national conversation over issues that have really affected Americans. They have, they are presenting a brand that reflects their internal culture and vice versa. So those are, you know, kind of some examples of organizations that we've talked about for years. You know, I think kind of newer examples are like Airbnb, um, their whole uh, identity uh, or their whole mission as a company is about creating a place where you feel like you can belong, whether that's you as a traveler, um, you know, belonging in kind of in the destination that you're going to, or you as an employee belonging in this inclusive culture. And then I would also put Amazon in this category of organizations that have done this really well. And we can definitely talk more about Amazon as we talk more about you know, what's been going on with the COVID-19 um, you know, pandemic and all, all the issues are being raised about their employees. But I think that, you know, what I, I, I always raise Amazon in this conversation because they are, um, you know, I guess I should say a few years ago, you may recall the New York Times did this kind of expose of sorts about the culture at Amazon. And yep. they talked about how the culture was, you know, bruising and relentless. And, um, you know, they reported about managers like firing employees because they failed to meet their exacting standards. You have people crying at their desk, getting yelled at, et cetera. And, um, you know, what was surprising is that while many people reacted to that uh, expose kind of uh, condemning Amazon and kind of saying, oh, you know, this is an awful culture, uh, dysfunctional, toxic, Jeff Bezos, the CEO, is a tyrant. You know, there are many employees and other people, including myself, that kind of said, you know what, 
this makes a lot of sense because if Amazon is going to be as competitive and as powerful as they are, you know, as they become to us as customers, their organizational culture you know, needs to be very high performance. It needs to be very demanding. And granted, now I think that they've kind of taken that to an extreme where, again, we can kind of debate about whether they've, they've gone too far. But the alignment and integration of brand and culture at Amazon is very clear. And so that would be another example of an organization, I'd say, that has fused the two together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anytime a company grows that large and becomes that omnipresent in our lives, you know, in some people's minds, they're inspirational. And in some people's minds, you know, there's room for critique. Um, and I think that's just part of the world we live in today. And, you know, it's a nice thing that everyone has a, a platform to share their perspectives and opinions. Um, what, happens when a company, what happens when a company's brand and culture isn't aligned. You know, this this audience today is very well versed in risks. The risks of making certain decisions are not making certain decisions. So what are the risks of not having a brand and culture that are aligned? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, at the very basic level, your culture building efforts are likely to go to waste. Um, you might like have happy employees, but you don't necessarily have employees that are actually aligned with the results that you want to produce and are equipped and empowered to do so. And like, and, and likewise, also your brand building efforts are are probably going to be wasted in the sense that they're just not going to be believed. But I think that what what ultimately happens is that you damage your customer relationships as customers learn that you aren't what you say you are. Um, they the, the trust that they might have had in you or you know the benefit of, of the doubt that they might have given to you has been completely broken, and that can result in um, a loss of business, a loss of revenue, loss of reputation. Um, you know, we, we can look at Uber, for example. Um, you know, Uber started out um, kind of promoting its brand as this very progressive, democratic, um, we're going to bring, we're going to make everyone feel like a rock star by giving them like a great customer experience. Um, but then, you know, we found out about the kind of toxic bro culture with an organization. We find out about all the kind of um, corrupt business practices that they were actually um, supposed to be fighting against. And so then, you know, there was that whole delete Uber movement. And, and I think it really opened that, that um, the revelation of the disconnect between the brand and culture at Uber led the door to be open for Lyft to come in and become a viable competitor to Uber. I, I, you know, I kind of wonder if that had never happened with Uber, whether Uber would, um, can, would have been like just the dominant player and not really had to, um, to address the competition the way that it has had today. Um, but I think that even beyond damaging customer relationships, when your brand and your culture are not aligned, you actually then open up your organization to a whole lot of risk and crisis. And so the example here that I would maybe um, point to is Wells Fargo. You know, Wells has always had this very wholesome, um, old-fashioned kind of brand identity. You know, it's got the stagecoach and the heartwarming commercials at you know, Christmas time with, uh, you know, the team members working hard to get the packages to everyone on time. And, you know, and Wells has just had this, I think, image of being kind of this very wholesome brand. 
And then yet um, we found out about the corrupt practices in a, in a part of their organization where employees were opening up fake credit card and fake bank accounts for customers without the customer's permission. And they were doing this because they were under the employees were under such pressure from managers to meet their numbers. And so there's this huge disconnect between kind of how Wells was portraying itself and then the practices of at least a part of their company. And while in general, you know, um, Wells has suffered, I think, you know, their business has um, really been um, had a, a big blow because of this issue. I think one of the hardest things they've had to do is kind of work back to regain the trust because there there was this kind of disconnect of, oh, we used to think that Wells was like this and now we found out it's something else. Can we really trust that they are what they say they are? So, you know, the, yeah. um, the, the risks can be small, they can be large, um, but there definitely will be consequences. So, you know, we got a question from one of our audience members, William, and it's very, you know, directly relevant to what we're talking about right now. And I think that we probably touch on it later, but I feel inclined to bring it up because it feels like a very natural point to ask it. So in a larger organization, like the ones that you're referencing, do you feel like it's difficult to manage the culture of a regional or local kind of extension of that massive company where, you know, what's happening in a specific location might not be aligned with the overall corporate culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually looking at the chat now and, and William brought up the example of Starbucks and the problem they had in Philadelphia when a black patron was um, arrested and there was a, the whole like fallout from that. And yes, I think it's extremely difficult um, when, you know, when you are a small business, um, you know, you are in as a business leader, you're interacting with, with most of your people on a regular basis. And, um, you know, I think everyone um, has, just, it's kind of just in the ethos of the company, but as you grow, um, your your desired culture, your values, your expectations get interpreted by thousands and thousands of people. And, um, you know, often things get lost in the translation. And so I think that you um, need to, on the front end, proactively the way that you can offset or try to offset those kinds of, um, that kind of variability is to be crystal clear about what your purpose and values are and to have that be something that is um, always a focus, always a priority, always being communicated and reinforced by everything that you do. But then, you know, still, even if you do that, there are going to be incidences. Um, that arise. We are humans. Um, ex, you know, actual experiences vary from our expectations, and so you're, you have problems. And so then, it's how do you respond? You know, what happens when there is this breach of alignment? Um, and I and I do believe that Starbucks um, responded very well in the sense that they um, they shut down that location. Um, the uh, the CEO of the company at the time, Kevin, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering his last name, you know, flew out to Philadelphia to meet with the, the men who were involved in the incident, to meet with the manager and the store employees. And it ended up growing into a co- corporate-wide movement of un- helping everyone understand how, what are our values and how do you interpret them in situations like the one that arose? And so I think that, you know, 
um, as I said, these kinds of problems are unavoidable. It's what you do to try to prevent them and then how you react to them that really then shows if you, if this brand culture fusion is a priority for you or not. Yeah. And I, I remember that incident very well because I follow Starbucks and all of their social media channels and they, you know, really use that social media presence to publicize and talk about what they were doing to fix what happened on all their Instagram accounts and their Instagram stories. They really went deep into, you know, what they were doing to address the problem. And, you know, from, from my perspective as, a, you know, the ethics and compliance community, they actually built a website dedicated to what they were doing to resolve that kind of incident. Mm. And they shared mm. all of the resources and the playbook publicly for anyone to use for free to say here, you know, we're acknowledging what we did wrong and we're doing what we can to fix it. And if you guys encounter anything of this nature or something happens that you need to kind of address similarly, here are all of the resources and here are all the materials that we use in our kind of one or two day long workshops um, that you could use and repurpose for your own kind of, uh, you know, incident as well, if it ever comes to that, which I thought was really, really uh, a powerful kind of act and a, a great kind of, mm -hmm. you know, a, attempt to resolve what happened. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, and William, it's really a great question. It's obviously a question that a lot of people um, in this position think about in terms of ethical behavior and compliance violations and something we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, I want to kind of maybe get back on track a little bit, Denise, and talk about, um, you know, reverting back to brand culture fusion. Um, you know, we've spoken about some of the benefits or some of the kind of downsides of not really having that integration. Um, so I'm curious if you, you know, if you'd be able to expand upon how that actually happens, how you might operationalize that, you know, it's not an accident when it happens. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a deliberate decision. So what are the foundations of a brand culture fusion? And what are some of the strategies that professionals could pursue, you know, after today to achieve that fusion? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and I love this question, Sean, because you're absolutely right. This kind of fusion and in culture in general doesn't just happen. You know, you can't just kind of assume, oh, everyone's going to get it and we're going to end up with kind of culture we want. Um, you, you really have to actively cultivate it. And so I always talk about there are some foundational actions that need to be taken and then some specific strategies. And so I'll talk about the foundation, then we talk about the strategies, and then we can talk about specifically how the um, people who are on this call can engage with those strategies. The foundation of brand culture fusion is first in having a single overarching purpose and a single set of core values for your organization. And um, I find that most, or most business leaders, most organizations understand the importance of purpose and values, but they tend to go about having them or, or building them in the wrong way in the sense that um, for example, you know, companies will have a kind of corporate mission statement that, that spells out kind of, you know, maybe what their financial goals are, or maybe, you know, they, some, gen some generic statement about how they're going to, um, compete with innovative products and world, world class customer service, you know, whatever, some sort of mission statement to describe what they're trying to do as a company. And then they will have a brand essence or a brand purpose or a brand statement that's completely separate that talks about um, what they want their brand to be known by customers. 
And, you know, in fact, I, I had uh, recently given a talk to a group of scaling companies and I looked at one of their websites and, you know, they talked about how, you know, they were um, kind of like this world-class leading, um, you know, problem solver uh, kind of as a brand that that's what they, they wanted to be known as. But like when you looked at really kind of what their mission statement was, it was a very kind of generic, okay, we're going to grow by this much and we're going to, um, you know, be the, the category leader or something, something very, very expected. And so not only do you have um, a mission statement that is maybe not as compelling or, um, as inspiring or as focused as you need it to be, but you have these two ideas and they are often very separate and maybe even can be conflicting. And so what, what you need to do is to have a, a single overarching purpose that describes what you're trying to achieve as an organization and therefore what you want to be known for as a brand. And the same thing with your core values. A lot of people, a lot of organizations will have organizational values. And then they'll have brand attributes and values. And again, they're often considered very separate. And so to avoid the disconnect between those two, you want to have a single set of core values that explain what you're known for, explain what you want to be known for as a brand and explain how people within your organization um, operate. You know, an example, um, again, I'll, I'll I'll talk about Amazon, you know, they have these leadership principles, which are their core values of the organization. One of their leadership in, um, principles is to invent and simplify. And it's all about their philosophy as an organization about how they're always pushing to um, create new ways of doing things, but that are, that simplify um, the process, that make it easier, um, make uh, the organization operate more efficiently, but then also make the customer experience more efficient. And that invent and simplify probably aren't the words that as customers we would use to describe Amazon, but they actually are how we think about Amazon. Yes, that's what Amazon does. So um, you need to have a single set of core values and a single overarching purpose as kind of the, the guiding um, North Star and compass for your organization um, also, in terms of laying the foundations, you want to ensure that the leaders of your organization take responsibility for achieving this brand culture fusion. Often what, what happens, the reason why you have these disconnects between like a mission statement and brand statement or, you know, organizational values and brand values is that the leaders of the organization kind of delegate responsibility for these things to different departments. Okay, well, you know, HR, you're going to do our core values or organizational values and marketing, you're going to do our brand values. And okay, now leaders just kind of say, okay, we're done. We, we got that straight. Whereas if you truly want to have the integration and alignment of these things with an organization, the top leaders of the organization need to be champions, they need to be responsible, they need to be taking action to facilitate that integration. Um, and part of that is then assessing the current state of your fusion and relative to you know, your ideal or desired state, and then determining where you need to focus your development. So those are all kind of just the beginnings of brand culture fusion 
what I call the foundations. Once you have those foundations, then there are specific strategies that organizations can take to actually cultivate brand culture fusion. Um, and so the, I offer in the book, in my book fusion, I offer four strategies that focus on cultivating your desired culture by aligning it with your existing brand identity. So you kind of um, are using your brand as a starting point and then you, and trying to bring your culture in line with that. And then I explain a fifth strategy, which is the other way around, which is, you know, you start with your culture and try to bring your brand along with that. But I'll just briefly kind of just, you know, summarize these five strategies. The first is to organize and operate on brand. So you want to implement an organizational design and operational processes that actually operationalize your desired culture. So, you know, your culture, you can't just talk about it as, an, as a leader and as an organization, you actually have to live it. The second strategy is to create culture-changing employee experiences. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis on customer experience in the last five or 10 years in business. And while that is extremely important, what organizations are learning now is that you can't really get to that desired customer experience if your employee experience isn't set up and aligned and integrated with that. So you need to design and manage the employee experience just as you would customer experience so that your, your desired culture is cultivated in every part of that experience. Then you... The third strategy is to sweat the small stuff. And what I mean by that is to really dig into kind of the, the um, kind of minute daily, um, maybe even kind of mundane aspects of your organization, uh, whether there's, there are kind of rituals and artifacts or policies and procedures. You want to make sure that every detail of your organization and advances and supports your desired culture. And then the fourth strategy to align your culture with your brand is to ignite your transformation with employee brand engagement. So you want to ensure that employees know in their heads, you know, what your brand stands for, feel in their hearts inspired to support that and to change their behaviors in order to, to bring your brand to life. And then, um, instructed and equipped and empowered in their hands and their feet to actually take actions, make decisions that support your desired brand. And as I said, those four strategies are if starting with your brand and trying to align your culture with that. The fifth strategy is about building your brand from the inside out. You know, if your culture is is so powerful or so it's so clear or it's really the thing that differentiates you as an organization, then you want to um, leverage that to define or redefine your brand identity by bringing more of your cultural practices out into the open and helping your customers understand how that really creates value for them. So those are the, the five strategies for achieving brand culture fusion. And I think, you know, um, what I'll, I'll say one more thing and then we can kind of, I'll stop and then we can talk a little bit more about this. But I think that, you know, as I think about ethics and compliance professionals, you know, where do you plug in uh, into the, what I've talked about? The first is in, in the foundational level, really advocating for the single per, single set of core values and single purpose. But then in terms of the strategies, it probably really is plugging into um, sweating the small stuff and ensuring that every aspect of the organization 
reflects your desired culture. Obviously, you're going to be involved in all of the strategies, but that's probably where you could probably um, have the most influence. So like I said, I'll kind of stop there and then, you know, um, let me know where you want to kind of dive in more. Yeah, you know, I think that the next area worth exploring, because it's, you know, obviously inextricably tied to this is really values um, and what, what values mean and how you define them. I can't speak for everyone on the call, but moments like the one we're in right now, you know, I think week 10 of quarantine amidst this pandemic have really pushed me to rethink my own values and what matters to me, you know, deeply. And I have to imagine that, you know, some of the people on this call and the companies they work for um, are, you know, whether or not they're formally changing their values, at the very least, I'd like to think they're thinking about them more and certainly on their minds. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you define the core values of a company and what relationship do those values have to the type of brand that a company aspires to be or the type of, you know, compliance program that a company aspires to have? You know, quickly, I'll just add a little wrinkle here. Um, you know, compliance programs traditionally have trained their employees and built their training programs around the risks and regulations that govern their business and their industry. And that's still true. But what we've seen a big surge in over the past, you know, 24 to 36 months is really the integration of those core values and the company values into the training. So it's not just you need to be mm-hmm. conscious of these risks and what you don't do or what you shouldn't do when you're conducting business, but really these are our values and this is what we, how we expect you to behave when you are doing the right thing. Um, so maybe you could expand mm-hmm. upon really the definition of how you, how you create and identify what the values of a company are and then you know, connect those to your brand and culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I define your, your core values as the essential and enduring principles and priorities that prescribe the desired mindset and behavior of everyone who works at your company. Uh, in other words, your core values are really kind of the operating instructions for your organization. Now, I, I should make sure to clarify that I differentiate between core values and category values in the sense that there are certain category values, or maybe even I would say categorical values, that every organization needs to have um, and needs to embrace. Um, so um, a lot of times the values that I see companies talk about fall into this category, integrity, respect, teamwork. All of those kinds of values are critically important um, for any company. Um, I also see uh, um, organizations articulate values that are specific to their category. So, for example, I uh, work a lot in the restaurant or retail businesses. And so um, kind of being focused on being fast and service oriented. Those are also what I would consider to be category values. They are givens. If you want to be a serious player, you need to embrace these values. But your core values should be unique. They should be the things that differentiate the way you as an organization do things specifically. They need to um, uh, express the unique behaviors, the unique mindsets, the uh, the unique ways that you work together so that you can achieve your desired brand identity. If you want to be perceived differently on the outside, you need to operate differently on the inside. And if you espouse, you know, values that are the same as every other company in your category, you're going to get results that are the same as every other company in your category. So you want to make sure that your core values are unique. 
And so what I think that you're asking about, Sean, is that in my book, Fusion, I talk about generally there are nine types of brands that brands fall into. And this is based on my 25 plus years of working on brands. I've kind of concluded that generally speaking, brands compete in like nine different ways, um, you know, whether it's being innovative or being service or being performance. Um, and so then you, what you want to do is identify what brand type you, your brand falls into or that you want your brand to fall into. And then you can isolate the kinds of values that are needed to support it. For example, if you wanted to become an innovative brand, well, then from a culture standpoint, you're going to need to cultivate a culture that is very much around risk-taking and experimentation and curiosity and um, actually accepting and embracing and even rewarding failure. And so that's what I mean by having unique values that really differentiate the way that you operate so that then you have this alignment of your external brand and your internal culture. That's, that's perfect. And I think that really leads into our next question very well. So one of the core pillars of an ethics and compliance program and really the document that best encompasses and integrates its culture, its values, its policies as part of its brand building is the code of conduct. And we recently hosted a webinar on the impact of COVID-19 on ethics and compliance. And we asked attendees a question I think you'll find pretty interesting. So we wanted to know if they planned on changing their code of conduct in their ethics and compliance programs because of the pandemic and how it's impacted their business. Certainly, you know, people are working remote. Um, there are new risks that have been born from the pandemic, you know, whether it's data privacy or virtual harassment, all of these things that people might not have been thinking about three or six months ago. And we wanted to really know, you know, if these changes are, you know, headlines that you read or actual operational things that will change in the business. So we got 200 responses and 45% of the people said that their code doesn't need to change because of COVID-19. Um, 14% said they'd be making changes to reiterate and reinforce their values and culture. Um, two, 10% are making changes to reflect their risks and policies. And 31% of people said they aren't sure yet. So when you hear those numbers, you know, what do you really think about those results? And, and do you think that a company's culture or values or brand um, needs to be flexible in the moments like we're in right now? Or if these moments are really what, where you rely on the values that you have that got you to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I would like to give the folks who answer the survey the benefit of the doubt, um, the 45% that said that their code doesn't need to change. And I'd like to believe that that's because their code of conduct covers the full range of risk and the full um, understanding of values-based codes of conduct versus just compliance-based. I'd like to believe that. Um, but I will say that if, if that's not the case, then I do think that you that this is the the perfect opportunity and actually a great responsibility to take another look at your at your code of conduct and make sure that it actually does um, address the the increased breadth of risk that's out there. I think that in the past, perhaps, um, there was more focus on just kind of like digital or IT or financial risk. Now there's so much more um, risk in terms of um, social responsibility and your reputation and crisis communications, et cetera, that, that may not have been on people's radars before. Um, there's also just, I think, kind of longer term risk in terms of people really thinking about, um, you know, unfortunately, this, this COVID-19 is not the last 
pandemic we're going to see. And so, you know, how do you how do you operate in in a world that is um, where you are ready for constant challenge and constant threat and constant risk? Um, and then also, as I said, you know, really thinking about your values and whether they are those more um, general category values that um, maybe to prescribe what would be at a very basic level your expectation for an employee versus getting to those core, unique core values that define how you are going to thrive in this new world and how you are going to address the new risks in ways that you um, that really reflect your your unique capabilities, your unique competencies, your unique purpose. And so um, I, I would just say it, this, it, it, it probably behooves everyone to take another look at their, at their code of conduct and really get a sense for um, does this set, up, uh, set us up for all of the um, possibility and opportunity that we have now um, in this situation? Absolutely. And we have about 13 minutes left. So I think we're just going to do one or two more questions, Denise, and then maybe we'll address okay, some questions sure. from the audience. I think we're good on time, but just want to address that. And really, you know, the overlap between the code of conduct and some of the key ideas in your book is what got me personally excited about the potential for you to participate in the series. Um, you know, and just like the responsibilities of an ethics and compliance program, the scope of a brand culture fusion philosophy extends beyond just the code of conduct and really you know, integrates through every level of the organization. And what we're seeing more and more of, um, especially among some of the more mature and developed programs, some of the bigger companies that really think of themselves as innovators in the ethics and compliance space, is this extension of their culture and their brand building throughout every pillar of their ethics and compliance program. So we'll see them kind of align and customize their training content to look and feel like something their marketing department would produce that looks like their commercials and everything else. But what's even more mm -hmm. interesting, and I think important today and for this conversation and for the moment we're in right now, um, where you know we're increasingly decentralized, is that people will the compliance teams will work with champions or advocates across the company who have demonstrated a commitment to ethical behavior or an interest in helping spread this gospel of ethics and compliance to their colleagues and teammates and peers. Um, but with that type of employee evangelism style of program, I have to imagine comes a lot of trust that those people will effectively do what you're expecting them to do. And a lot of that trust and kind of relationship gets built uh, through communication. So I'm curious what advice you can give to our, to our audience today about when it comes to enabling colleagues to kind of act as brand advocates or brand ambassadors for an ethics and compliance program, how do you do that well and what role does good communication play in that? Yeah, um, well, I have to say, I really relate to this question well, because, you know, coming out of um, being in the marketing department for many of the organizations that I worked for when I was in the corporate world, I think that there's a lot of similarities in the sense that, you know, you are trying to influence people and find those champions throughout the organization who can really help you because you don't have a lot of authority. Um, you're often perceived as like this cost center as opposed to this value creator. And so you really are trying to get people to get on board with you and to embrace what you're doing. Um, and so I think the first thing that I would say is that it's important that whomever you are enrolling, well, actually, maybe first, first, I should say, start with yourselves, right? Make sure that you have the right um, approach to integration, and you understand that um, 
you know, that you are going to need to get things done through influence. And um, you're going to need to let other people get credit for the progress that is made in, in your programs. And you're going to have to and, and actually, um, uh, you know, be comfortable with empowering other people. I think that, like, from the very beginning, that needs to be your starting point. Then I think, you know, you, you um, need to uh, help the people that you're working with understand that this is not a compliance issue. This is not a com compliance program. Um, this is a business issue. This is a business priority. And the more that they personally can take ownership for what, for what they are advocating, as opposed to just kind of doing something off to the side, separate from the, the way that they're running their business or the way they think about the business, but really kind of seeing themselves as an agent for change for the entire organization. I think that that's critical. And then I think that you um, do start with um, sharing clarity uh, on your purpose and your values um, on the, the customer, your customer, you know, internal customers that you are, you're, um, trying to reach and what are their needs and how can you create value for them? And then I think that it's, it's being very specific, whether it's creating tools, playbooks, um, resources, um, you know, you have to think like a training or the learning and development person, like an HR person, really. And how do you equip how do you provide the upskilling necessary for people to step into this role? Um, so those are some of the steps I think that you can take. But, you know, I think the bottom line, it does start with if you have the right mentality about the way that you're going to get your organization to change. It's not up to you and it's not um, up to your department. Yeah, and I think a lot of what you touched on is really really interesting and relevant and about changing the way people perceive the role of compliance within an organization that's not just this insular function, but really important to everyone. Um, and you kind of touched on this concept that, you know, marketing or thinking of yourself as a marketer really plays a big role. And, you know, we believe that, you know, an effective compliance program takes this campaign-based approach where, you know, when you buy a Big Mac from McDonald's, it's not just because you saw one commercial about a Big Mac, you saw a print ad, you heard a radio mm -hmm. ad, you saw a billboard, and the social post, and all this stuff. And really, you know, it's this repetition that's integral to an effective kind of strategy. Are there any other kind of communications best practices um, that you would recommend to compliance professionals that are really trying to kind of help build this brand or change that behavior and kind of be memorable, right? To really kind of mm -hmm. connect uh, these risks with the, with the behaviors of an organization. Because I think that communication. Mm -hmm. Um, is increasingly becoming more important and more frequent, uh, especially today where people might not be in the office and have that even FaceTime together. So what are some communication best practices? Maybe we'll wrap up on that and then uh, refer to some kind of questions from the audience as we as we wind down. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sean, you know, if you would allow me, I would actually say that, um, you know, communications is the last thing that you should be thinking about. And the first thing that you should be thinking about is really what is the value that you're creating. So your analogy about the Big Mac um, or a burger or whatever in general, um, the, the way, the only reason why an advertising campaign will work for that Big Mac is if the Big Mac is really good and if people really want it. <laughs> 
and that they're willing to pay for it, right? And so I think that, you know, thinking about what are you really, what is the value really creating for the organization? Um, And um, making sure that you are making changes to the way that you operate and the way that you are uh, designing your programs, designing your trainings, um, the way that you are even... um, uh, designing your code of conduct, uh, making sure that all of that is clearly, it clearly creates value, is clearly different, is clearly customer focused in the sense of your internal customers and, you know, um, addresses what their needs are, what their priorities are, what their goals are. You know, all of that needs to happen first, you know, um, and then I think you can think about communications. And I, and, um, I would just say a couple of things. One is segmentation. All great customer marketing is based on identifying discrete groups of people who have needs or attitudes or even demographics that um, enable you to target them and speak to them specifically. And so I would say when you're looking at your communications for your compliance efforts, don't treat your organization as a one size fits all, or don't even look at, you know, um, by job function or job level or title, there's different ways that you might think about your program. Um, design your communications to reach attitudes, different values, different um, mindsets that people bring to work and um, bring to what they're doing and bring to the, the, the their pr- perspectives on your company and and make sure you're tying what you are giving to them into those distinct needs and drivers for them. And then the second thing really is, and I've already kind of touched on this before, but all great, you know, customer communication is about um, differentiation and relevance. So what are you telling me that is, um, that I need to know that is different um, that is unique, that is going to change my perspective on something. And that, and it's a difference that makes a difference. It may, I need to pay attention to this because it's important to me specifically. So those are just the two, a couple of, of key principles in terms of marketing, I'd say segmentation and then um, differentiation and relevance in, in everything that you, that you message out. I love that. And, and it's, it's so true. That's, that's genuinely uh, re- really good advice. So as we wind down, uh, you know, we answered William's question earlier in, in the session, but we have two from Adam. Um, one is very easy and one is a little bit more challenging. Um, so the easy one is, uh, you know, Adam has read your other books and really likes them a lot. Do you, whether or not you have any recommendations for other books um, that you think compliance professionals would read. And while you think about that, I'll ask the, the second question, um, which really focuses on transparency. And Adam, you know, in his experience, he's seen that in a lot of companies, will terminate people who have committed, uh, committed compliance violations or you know, legal and regulatory violations, and will describe those departures as retirements or a similar euphemism that doesn't truly reveal <laughs> the, the nature of why that person is leaving the company. And he feels like that has a negative impact on the, on the culture and suggests that you know, these bold pro-compliance statements that a lot of companies promote are somewhat empty statements. Now, do you feel like companies should be more transparent and open um, when they're firing people for compliance violations or more generally, is there an obligation to kind of share that transparency into the true nature of what's happening? Yeah, you know, um, I would say yes. Companies should be more um, transparent, more open, more authentic. Um, not only because I think um, 
you know, your people deserve that. You know, I think um, we need to recognize that our employees, our colleagues are human beings um, who deserve truthfulness and, tr and, and transparency. But it also does um, uh, provide an opportunity for you to draw attention to how important these things are. And, um, you know, Jack Welch, um, the uh former head of GE, um, you know, talked about when you, when you find people who are not aligned with the values in your organization, you, you talked about how you have to publicly hang them, which I think is a little crass, but you know, he, but the reason why he, he says that is because you need to make it clear that these values really matter. And so in the same way, I think that when you are terminating someone for a, a violation on a code of conduct or something like that, you, it, it's an opportunity to, to state how important this is. Now, there may be legal and ethical ramifications that you need to kind of deal with, but I would, but overall, Adam, I think that yes, I, I, I whole, wholeheartedly support your thought. And I think that your people will respect you more for it. It might not be politically correct, but they will respect and appreciate that. Um, and then going back to your first question, you know, um, Adam, I wish I knew you and your colleagues better to be able to make a really good recommendation for books. Um, I've tried, you know, Sean and, and Richard have tried to help me understand where they're coming from. And um, so, uh, you know, I've tried to get into your world a little bit, but I don't think I know you well enough to recommend a book. Um, I will say that one of the best books that I've read on this brand integration is a book called Building the Brand Driven Business. And it's um, by these consultants at a firm called Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Um, it's, it's now probably 15 years, the book is probably 15 years old or whatever, but it's all about operationalizing your brand. And I think that if you were to read it through the lens of compliance and ethics, it would be just as informative as it was to me as a brand person. Awesome. Thank you, Denise. And Adam, we certainly have some ideas over at SAI that we'll share uh, via email with the wider group that might even be future book club initiatives. So, uh, Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that everyone listening uh, definitely got some value from it and hopefully some actionable tips they could take away with them. Um, you know, be safe, be well, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see each other in the near future when things uh, revert to normalcy. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Sunday Book Review. Also, I hope that you will join us again next week where we talk about some of the books which caught my eye the last week in May 2020. I hope you're safe and you make good choices over this Memorial Day weekend and into the next week. Thanks again for listening. The Sunday Book Review is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.